Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. And once again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired Word. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the desert of Judea and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. John's clothes were made of camel's hair, and he had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey, and people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not think you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. With the holidays upon us, there is a word associated with the season that is likely familiar with all. I realize that words like hope and peace and joy and love are the words that most likely first come to mind. But there is another word that is associated with the season, for it is indispensable for most of us, and that is the word preparation. We've already had a taste of it with Thanksgiving, particularly if the gathering of friends and family was at your house. But now, as we look forward to Christmas, we may begin to be exhausted thinking about all that needs to be accomplished over the next couple of weeks. There are decorations to be hung. If that has not already occurred, there are travel plans to make and gifts to be purchased. There are Christmas cards to write. There are guest rooms to clean and cookies to bake. There is wrapping to be done and trips to the UPS There are social gatherings to attend, some eagerly, some reluctantly. And there are still bills to pay and laundry to do and kids to transport and work obligations to satisfy. And everywhere you go, it seems to be crowded, hampering your ability to get everything done. 
All of those preparations are exhausting to be sure, but it is also because of those careful preparations that this time of the year has become so very special to us. But I want to suggest to you this morning that the preparations in which we engage are nothing compared to the preparations that God made which gave us the reason for the season. The Gospel writer Matthew addressed his account of the Messiah's birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension to an audience that was primarily Jewish. And if we were to return to the very beginning of his Gospel account, we would discover that he begins in what we would describe as a very odd approach. For he begins with a genealogy. Beginning with Abraham, he follows a line of descendants down through King David all the way to Jesus. And he does so in thirds. From Abraham to David, from David to the Babylonian captivity, from the Babylonian captivity to Joseph, whom he describes not as the father of Jesus, but as the husband of Mary. And each third he describes as being of 14 generations. Now, it is not my intention to examine this literary prelude exhaustively this morning, except to call attention to a couple of things in the divine preparation that are worthy of our consideration as we ponder the kind of preparation necessary for the king's second coming. Matthew's primary intention in this gospel is to demonstrate that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah and that his regal and legal descendancy is a thread that follows from Abraham down through David all the way to Joseph, who was the legal father to Jesus. Now, what's curious about Matthew's accounting is that he is not mentioning every forefather, but only those he deems to be significant, sometimes by their insignificance. But he also weaves into this lineage the names of four women, all of whom were likely Gentiles, three of whom were of a morally dubious reputation, as one commentator has put it. And so while Matthew is demonstrating to his Jewish readers that Jesus has a lineage that traces back to Abraham, with whom God made a covenant that by him all the families of the world would be blessed, down through King David, with whom God also established a covenant promising that a future descendant of his would have an everlasting kingdom, Matthew is also showing that God's preparations for a Savior have included Gentiles and sinners all and shows our need for a Savior by raising up the unpleasantness of Babylon as a metaphor for our own captivity to sin. The Messiah that Matthew is announcing is not simply a Savior for Israel, but a Savior for the world and that his time has finally come. Now, Matthew's emphasis on the number of generations being 14 has a significance that is not readily apparent, and there is disagreement among commentators over it. However, there are those who suggest that it was a number in Matthew's day that signified plenitude and completion 
which suggests that Matthew is showing his Jewish audience that God has intentionally prepared for the day of Messiah's appearing and that that time is now being fulfilled. One commentator has offered a most interesting observation that the number of high priests from Aaron, the first, to the establishment of Solomon's temple was 14, and then from the temple to Jadua, the last high priest mentioned in scriptures, was also 14, which suggests that Matthew is also calling attention to the high priestly ministry that Jesus will render when he brings the sacrifice of his own blood before God the Father and offers himself as our unblemished sacrificial lamb. Now all that background, along with Matthew's account of Christ's nativity, is foundational to our text for today. When Matthew writes, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now we have said before from this pulpit that the efficacy of God's word proclaimed is demonstrated in that statement. It makes no logical sense that a man of poor fashion and culinary habits preaching in a desolate place should ever draw a single person to himself, let alone the tremendous crowds attested by the testimonies of all the gospel writers. To say that then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about Jordan were going out to him is on the face of it incredulous. The worldly wise thing for John to do would have been to go to Jerusalem during one of the three pilgrimage feasts and to raise his voice there in the temple courts and begin to proclaim the nearness of the Messiah's coming. Or it would have made more worldly sense to engage in an itinerant ministry, going from village to village, using the regular gathering of folks on the Sabbath to make these prophetic announcements of God's impending Christ. The problem with that would have been that such approaches were contrary to the means that God had ordained. Eight centuries before, God revealed through the prophet Isaiah that there would be a voice crying out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. And John had a deep sense of his divinely appointed identity. The angel Gabriel revealed to John's father, Zechariah, that this son of his would be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and that he would go before the Messiah in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So, out of complete obedience, John went to the wilderness area where the waters of the river Jordan ran, but were far from the center of population, and there he began to proclaim the word of the Lord, and the Spirit of the Lord began to draw people to him. This foolishness of God resulted in large crowds coming and many responding to the admonition to repent and to be cleansed through the waters of baptism. And all the glory 
went to God. Let me ask you this morning, how many decisions do we Christians make that are based upon the wisdom of the world? How many decisions do congregations make because it is just common sense? We all know that there are entire denominations that are slowly fading away because their wisdom is not based upon the clear teaching of God's Word, but upon their darkened minds gravitating towards the ways of the world. And such decisions are made because most of us are steeped in the way the world thinks more than we are in the way the Lord thinks because we are negligent when it comes to regularly studying the Scriptures. John the Baptist was not ignorant of the Word of God. And so he foolishly obeyed what was prophesied about him, and he went to the wilderness to proclaim the coming of the kingdom. And in a costume fit for the cover of Homeless Men's Magazine, snacking on roasted grasshoppers dipped in honey, this bearded wonder offered a message of peace and reconciliation. Now wait a minute, you say. Do you expect us to hear peace and reconciliation in these very harsh words of his? I do. Is it true that John was not one to mince words? Absolutely. Is it true that he called the Pharisees and Sadducees a brood of vipers? It is. And while I would agree that is not the approach you use to win friends and influence people, I would also say that it is the way to awaken sinners to their true spiritual condition and shock them into life eternal. For when a person is spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins, it requires a truthful presentation of their situation, spoken with all the love and authority of God himself. Perhaps the greatest theological and philosophical mind ever produced in America is that of Jonathan Edwards, whose sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was used by the Lord to produce the first great awakening. Dr. Stephen J. Nichols writes of that particular moment, and I quote, on July 8, 1741, Edwards was in Enfield, Connecticut for a midweek service. He was not the intended preacher that night. The intended preacher had become ill and was out of commission. Eleazar Wilcock, who would go on to found Dartmouth College, gave Edwards the nudge to stand in the pulpit. Edwards delivered what is likely the most famous and the most read sermon ever preached on American soil. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. And the drama overwhelmed the crowd. They shrieked and cried out. But the drama did not stem from Edwards' technique. Rather than whoop up the crowd into a frenzy, Edwards waited for the congregation to regain its composure. And then he pressed on in his sermon. The drama came not in the technique, but in truth. The truth of eternal damnation. The truth that all of us are on the precipice of eternal judgment. 
the bow of God's wrath is bent and the arrow is pointed directly at us. We are like spiders dangling over the pit of hell, saved from the flames for the time being by a mere thread. God used Edward's words to pierce hearts. End quote. Now following that honest assessment of the spiritual condition of every man, woman, and child, Edwards then offered the good news that God has done something in Christ to save us. And this is what he said. And now you have an extraordinary opportunity, a day wherein Christ has flung the door of mercy wide open and stands in the door calling and crying with a loud voice to poor sinners. A day wherein many are flocking to Him and pressing into the kingdom of God. Many are daily coming from the east, west, north, and south. Many that were very lately in the same miserable condition that you are in are now in a happy state with their hearts filled with love to Him that has loved them and washed them from their sins in His own blood and they are rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. Now, what's interesting about that sermon is that Edwards had preached the sermon about a month before in his own church in Northampton. But it was milder, more pastoral, and the response to it was quite muted. But when Edwards sharpened the language to more clearly explain the impending danger that our inherent sinful state poses to us, the Holy Spirit drove home the point to such a degree that revival began. And that revival began with genuine repentance. The Greek word for repentance is metanoeo. It means to change one's way of life as the result of a complete change of thought and attitude with regard to sin and righteousness. Now we tend to think of repentance in terms of emotions, as in feeling sorrow or shame for what we've done. That's not what John or the Bible means by repentance. John is calling people to change their thinking so that they will change their behavior as a result. John is calling people to come to a point of decisiveness in regard to their sin and to willfully declare that they will no longer pursue sin, but will now pursue righteousness. Genuine repentance occurs when we are awakened to the glory and holiness and sovereignty of God and we then see our inherent sinful state as the rebellious offense that it is and we turn away from sin and turn towards the righteousness that God offers in Christ Jesus. And so when John sees the religious elite headed his way and he singles them out, He says to them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Now we know from our months long walk through Paul's letter to the Romans that there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. We also know that the great challenge of the Jews was a false understanding 
that because they were the biological descendants of Abraham, they were secure in their salvation. John is well aware that not all Israel is Israel. He understands that genealogy does not guarantee salvation. He understands that the Messiah is coming for a purpose, and that is to be the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. And he understands that unless we genuinely repent, the salvation that God offers in the Messiah will pass us by. So what does genuine repentance look like? Well, it is marked by a transformation of the inner man or woman such that the visible fruit of their lives reflects what has taken place within their spirits. When by the power of the Holy Spirit working within them to will and to work for God's good pleasure, they begin to walk in the ways of the Spirit, you will know that they have willfully abandoned the ways of sin and declared an allegiance to the sovereignty of Christ and begun to follow Him. To underscore the urgency of what he is announcing, John offers two images that were sure to gain the attention of the crowds. The first is that of an axe leaning against a tree as a determination is made about whether the root of the tree has been lost forever or has been regenerated. And John says even now that axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. In other words, time is of the essence. You see, don't think that we have all the time in the world to repent and come to the Savior. We do not. And the second image reinforces that. It is the image of the imminence of the Messiah's appearing with his winnowing fork in his hand, walking towards his threshing floor where he will use that fork to separate the grain from the chaff. Now, there was not a single person in John's audience who had never witnessed the harvester with a winnowing fork, tossing the grain into the air, beating it with the fork, shaking it violently so as to break the bond between the seed and the husk, causing the heavier grain to fall back to the floor as the breeze caught the lighter chaff and blew it off to the side. Over and again, the man with the fork would repeat this process until all that was left was the grain which would be gathered and placed safely in the barn, while the chaff would also be swept up and tossed into the fire to be burned. Both images that John offers end in fire for that which was deemed to have fallen short of the glory of God. It is one thing to think of useless trees and granular dust being destroyed by fire. It is an entirely different thing when we are thinking of the souls of men and women. The prospect of that is horrible to consider. And yet John sets before his listeners... An alternative, repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand or has come near. You see, there's no reason to fear the coming judgment. There is no reason to tremble in the face of the one who will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. For there is a path that brings life because there is one who has come near. God has prepared a way for salvation if we but give heed to the voice of one crying in the wilderness. 
what we celebrate in this season of the year is the culmination of centuries of preparation that God brought about so that we would not perish. God gave His only begotten Son so that whosoever would believe in Him might not perish, but instead might have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now, it was just four weeks ago that we studied the first half of Romans chapter 10, where Paul explained that our salvation is not a difficult thing for us. He says, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth, in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And this is the good news of the gospel. Heaven has come near. It's not required for us that we figure out a way to reach the heights of heaven. For the one who dwells in the heights of heaven has come down to us. And the question is, will we bow the knee before him? Will we repent, turn away from our sin, receive the atoning work of Christ our Savior by faith, and determine in our minds that we will follow him who died in our place? Beloved, we must not presume to know the time of our own reckoning. For no one can know the day or the hour in which the Lord will come for us. Some may think, like the Sadducees, that there is no life after death. But trust me, none of the Sadducees that John addressed believe that any longer. Or some may think, like the Pharisees, that there's no judgment for those who meticulously obey the law because I am a good person. And they too have been disabused of that idea as their totally depraved root has been exposed for what it is. To receive the offer that God extends is to cast yourself entirely upon the mercy of Christ and like the thief on the cross, say to him, Lord, remember me. When you come into your kingdom, In other words, let us repent, turn to Christ and receive what he has done for us. Confess with our mouth that he is Lord. Believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead. And we will be saved. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray.